Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and my guest today is Sonny Stalter Pace, author of Imitation Artist Gertrude Hoffman's Life in Vaudeville and Dance. Unless you have a particular interest in vaudeville, you might not have heard of Gertrude Hoffman. She's one of many entertainers who were big stars before World War I in vaudeville, but whose celebrity faded as the American public was seduced by radio and film after the Great War. Dr. Salter Pace's biography recounts Hoffman's groundbreaking career and places her work as a dancer, comedian, producer, and choreographer in the context of the American cultural landscape. Although Hoffman always worked in popular entertainment, she drew upon European modern dance for many of her most popular acts, serving as a conduit between the avant-garde and commercial theater. Welcome, and thank you for joining me today, Sunny. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so you are a professor of American literature at Auburn University, but Gertrude Hoffman is more well-known as a vaudeville dancer, so that seems pretty far from what I imagine most American lit people like to study. So how did you end up writing this biography? Well, ab- above and beyond anything else, I identify academically as working in modernism, and American modernism, as you know, is so indebted to the popular theater for so much of what it does, what it thinks about. So my first book was on the literary representations of the New York City subway. And I thought my second book was going to be about plays set on the New York City subway. I was browsing around in the New York Public Library's digital collections And I found a program for a vaudeville production that had a subway entrance tango. And that intrigued me. So I looked to see who it was. It was Gertrude Hoffman. I'd never heard of her. I looked her up and found that some work had been done on her by people in dance studies and in musicology. And the thing that really captured my imagination is finding out that she had gone to Paris and seen the Ballet Russe perform and had come back to the United States and put on her own imitation performance of Ballet Russe dances several years before the Diaghilev Company came to the U.S., And I thought, how have I never heard of that before? That's amazing. Uh, And just kept digging into her life, found her papers at Wake Forest, and the rest is history. Well, she's certainly a fascinating character. And I thought maybe for this interview, 
we could um, try to combine introducing parts of her life um, with some of the broader themes that you have identified over the course of your biography. So maybe we could start with just, um, you know, sort of the bare bones facts of her life. For instance, she was born in San Francisco, but spent her life in New York. So how did she end up in New York as an entertainer and dancer? Well, San Francisco in the late 19th century was quite a theater town, which was something I didn't know before I started working on this book. Uh, She worked in a lot of operas and spectacles, different kind of pageants that had a lot of girls in the chorus marching. And she really got to be pretty popular in San Francisco, but she kind of got to the peak of her career and ended up joining a musical theater company that had gone to San Francisco for the summer and traveled back with them to New York to be in their show, which had been booked in Oscar Hammerstein's theater. Uh, The show was called the night of the fourth was sort of um ragtime inspired musical comedy. Uh, It did not do particularly well in New York, but that's what got her to New York. And that ended up being a home base for her and for her husband for most of the rest of their life. So once she got to New York, um, not that long afterwards, really, she ended up becoming the first woman choreographer, stage manager on Broadway. I believe she was working for Oscar Hammerstein I, who's the grandfather of the much more famous librettist. Um, and that that was a big deal um, because being a director, I mean, there wasn't really a director as we thought think of it now, um, of course. So being a stage manager meant she was really in charge of the show. So how did she get a job like that as a woman? And also, did she experience a lot of sexism or pushback for being in such a an important role in the theater or did people just sort of accept that well i have a couple of theories about why she got the job uh she and her husband max hoffman had done some work in stock companies and she was used to doing everything to Um, staging the dances, to joining in, um, to working on the costumes. She she just had a sense of how all the pieces of a musical review would be put together. So I think that was partly what it was. Um, Her husband was a well-known composer and musical director. So a lot of the times they got booked as sort of a package deal. Um, but aside from that, there's not any one thing that I know of that is why Oscar Hammerstein the first booked her. Um, it's possible because he was such an opera aficionado that the fact that she had worked in operas in San Francisco was something that appealed to him. Um, she probably worked for pretty cheap. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons, but nothing really definitive. Um, but when she worked as a stage manager and dance director, she, 
she definitely tried to pay attention to the women she was working with as women um, to account for, you know, their sick kids and different things that would keep them from being able to make rehearsals. Um, but no, there's not um, much she talked about in her diaries in terms of discrimination or sexism. Although one thing I should say about that is because Gertrude Hoffman later in her life practiced uh, Christian science, one of the things that's really interesting about her diaries and her archive is she does not like to talk about much that went wrong in her life because she held a belief that that was thinking of God's creation as faulty when it in fact could not be faulty. So we don't get, her archive doesn't have much mention at all of her son, Max Jr., who passes away quite young at 40, 41. Um, Every once in a while when she talks about being, um, feeling betrayed or experiencing um, some kind of jealousy, she's careful to acknowledge that it was an error. Uh, The only thing she talks about in terms of experiencing sexism is that occasionally when she was a performer, um, she would get invitations to go back to people's hotel room and she would always bring Max with them. Um, as a way of kind of fending off admirers. And you didn't see any evidence, say, of critics saying something like, oh, the show was okay, or, you know, sort of um, saying that there was something wrong with the show because she was in charge or something like that. They did, she didn't experience it, pushback from the sort of institutional outside gatekeepers or anything either. Well, The thing that worked both for her and against her was she was working in a part of the theater that was considered very fluffy and light to begin with. So it's not anything where people would have said, oh, she's, you know, she's being too serious or she's not up to the task. Sometimes there were people, it was a very funny article in an old variety where, um, where somebody was talking about these girl acts nowadays, talking about how girl acts were all just a bunch of skinny orphans dancing the same three steps. But that was something that was a wider critique of girl acts that included both her and the other person who was very commonly doing these girl acts around the turn of the century, um, Ned Wayburn. So that was something that had more to do with just what was popular at the time for when you lined up a bunch of Corines and had them move in a synchronized way. So you've mentioned her son, Max Jr., and, and also her husband. And maybe this is a good time just to talk a little bit about her as um, part of a family. She and her husband were married for 60 years, which is certainly unusual in the entertainment business, of course, for everybody, actually. That's a long marriage. Um, but, you know, 
how did her being such a career woman, someone who was always busy on the road a lot, um, impact her as being part of a family? You know, how did she manage her relationship? How did they work together? And also, um, you know, how was she managing her life as a parent? Because certainly at the turn of the century, when she had her child, uh, the expectation of society would have been that she should give up everything to stay home with her child. So can you talk a little bit about um, that personal part of her life? Sure. That was one of the things I found to be most interesting about her was her having this long-term partnership that was both romantic and artistic as a collaboration um, and having a son. Um, Following the different census records um, around the turn of the century, it was interesting to see where Max Jr. was listed. Sometimes it was with his mother and father. Sometimes it was with Gertrude's mother, who moved from San Francisco to New York, um, who ended up being a primary caretaker for Max Jr. when um, Max and Gertrude were on tour. Um, and sometimes her one of her sisters lived with them, too. So there were... Just some little traces in censuses and different parts of her diary where I got a sense of who was actually watching her son while she was working these late nights, um, you know, in rooftop cabarets where the shows would sometimes start at midnight. Um, Her work with Max Hoffman, with her husband, um... It was interesting because he started off being the famous one of the duo. Um, He was a songwriter. Um, He got a start in Chicago transcribing ragtime songs that he heard people playing at the bars and um, then ended up being a music director. Uh, So as I think I said a little bit before, Um, In the early 20th century, they could get hired together where he would cover the music and she would cover the dance. Um, So it was it was just a good deal for people who wanted to have a kind of, you know, musical review, um, rooftop variety show type of show. Um, And he ended up working as the music director for quite a few of her shows and then ended up being her manager later too. Um, But they, yeah, they worked together for almost all of their life. There is just one little moment in time when Max had gotten a job as the music director for um, a Florence Ziegfeld show and couldn't get Gertrude a job in that show when she had thought, Oh, I wonder if we're going to break up. I wonder if we're going to split. I feel like it's about, or I feel like it's around the time when I'm about to become a star. Um, She thought she could get an audition and get a really solid contract um, through the United booking office, but she would have had to leave her husband behind. And she thought, For sure, if that happened, that would be the end of their marriage. Um, Luckily, it didn't. Um, A 
place was found for her in the Florence Ziegfeld show, Dancing with Anna Held. And that was where she ended up becoming um, especially famous for her imitations. Well, that works really well because I was going to ask you about the imitations. Um, so she, her first, uh, she, as you said, she first comes to the attention of the public with uh, because her imitations of famous people become so famous. So, um, and you talk a, a fairly for a, uh, at a, a fairly great length about not just what her act was like, but why imitations are important to say celebrity culture in the, at that time and why they were so popular and really resonated with audiences. So can you talk, uh, you know, just sort of continue that story. Tell us a little bit about that early act of hers. um, These couple of years when she's really doing a lot of imitations. Sure. This is a really interesting period in um, American vaudeville history Um, There's actually a song in a 1908 musical called The Imitation Craze and people writing in newspapers about, oh, how every summer show has to have a girl mimic as part of it. So this was just a really popular part of vaudeville um, where people would imitate anything and everything. They would imitate popular celebrities They would imitate bird calls. They would imitate different orchestra conductors. There was just a real sense that knowledge of popular entertainment and the world around you could be conveyed in this kind of authoritative yet comic way through imitation. And Hoffman was especially good at that not because she was, well, according to the reviews, not because she was a very skilled mimic, but because she had a really good sense of flash and spectacle. And she could pinpoint what, to, to use the term from Gypsy, what anybody's gimmick was really easily. And she could replicate that really well. I think that her being a stage manager, working behind the scenes, you know, making those costumes, that's what gave her a sense of how to really pinpoint what it is about some other celebrity that she could replicate and comment on in a funny way. So with Anna Held, who was Flo Zigfield's first partner, um, you know, she she was very French and she talked in a very sexy way. Um, and she had she had a song called I Just Can't Make My Eyes Behave. She sort of, you know, would dart her eyes all around. So Hoffman liked to do imitations of Anna Held. And at first when she was in the show, she supposedly did them for other people in the cast and they laughed Anna held came in. People thought she would be horrified, but in fact, Anna held said, Oh no, you're pretty good at that, but you should do this song instead of that song. And you should go on before me in the show. So Gertrude Hoffman's fake Anna held ended up serving as a kind of warm-up act for the real thing. 
and she did that in a similar way when she moved from um, that show to a show with George M. Cohan, where she did an imitation of, of George M. Cohan. Um, so she's doing these imitations in the same show as the quote unquote originals um, in a way that is both a parody and a kind of compliment that amplifies their sense of import- importance, their sense of recognizability as a part of celebrity culture. Well, there's can be a fine line between imitation and theft of of intellectual property. Uh, what happened to them in terms of uh, well, Gertrude, but also, of course, remembering that Max was was such a partner in her work. Uh, did they ever get in trouble for any kind of copyright infringement? Where you know where was entertainment at that point in terms of people protecting their image and their intellectual property from the kind of imitation that was so common in that period? Well, it's interesting. Hoffman's career is really at this turning point between imitation as being a form of flattery and imitation as being something where you're impeding on their intellectual property. So um, she was doing imitations that were considered complimentary. And there were other women who were doing imitations of other celebrities at this time um, where the celebrities would, you know, say Ethel Barrymore would peek her head into the theater and see how the imitation of her was going. Um, But this starts to shift. um, And based on Marla Schweitzer's work and some other work, some people think it's after, you know, the financial panics of the time where people are less willing to just sort of laugh along and more interested in enforcing their rights to their intellectual property. So um, there's a, there's an adaptation or a translation, I should say, of the Merry Widow that is produced on Broadway in 1907. It's a big hit. And it's something where um, Colonel Henry Savage, who's bought the rights, has taken out ads in all sorts of trade papers and said, I own the rights to this. If you are going to do a parody of this, you need to pay for permission. Uh, And some people think that, yeah, okay, we'll do that. Um, but mostly people in vaudeville just say, no, that's ridiculous. Um, so there's all manner of parodies of the Merry Widow Waltz in different vaudeville routines, um, in different vaudeville acts, um, people dancing with dummies, people dancing with people in the audience. Um, but Gertrude Hoffman does a Merry Widow Waltz. And Colonel Henry Savage sues her to try to get an injunction to stop her from doing her imitation of the Merry Widow Waltz. So she was the one who was popular enough, who was using enough of the songs and enough of the score 
that he thought, no, this is, this is the person that I need to stop. Um, and the, the publicity for the court case really backfires on him because their lawyer uh, finds that, well, let me back up. The publicity for the court case really backfires on Savage because there'd been some critiques in the press that said that the Mary Widow score had borrowed from some other musicians and some other works already. Uh, and that's something that only was amplified um, in the press. And when Gertrude Hoffman's case came to the public, people really wanted to defend her. She's this cute, scrappy, um, you know, vernacular performer. And she basically, she wins people over and you get people writing in uh, monthly magazines and different journals saying, yeah, so I looked into it and actually the Merry Widow has ripped off this story and this play and this song. Uh, so there's no reason that they should be suing this, you know, this young and scrappy performer for doing the same thing that they're doing. Um, that's not actually how the case is decided. Um, the case, um, well, the preliminary injunction is denied because the judge basically says the only people who might have rights to bring a case against Miss Hoffman um, are the actors who she's imitating. Um, but that's not who's bringing it. Uh, that's not who's bringing the case. So, no, you can't stop her from doing this imitation. Um, but then in sort of the court of public opinion, Savage just ends up looking really ridiculous. And um, Hoffman gets a lot of attention and a lot of kind of cultural capital for for putting up this fight for people who still want to do parodies and imitations and riffs on popular culture. So she has now become famous for these imitations, um, riding the crest of a lot of other people who are doing different other kinds of imitations, as you point out. And about 1910, it seems like her ambition really grows. And she goes from, you know, being a part of other people's productions or having a relatively small act to a big review style act that's quite long and very involved. And um, I you know, why does she move up? Like where, where does she get the money for this? How does she move into this new space? And also this is when um, she, uh, around this time is when you, you get the connection to the Ballet Russe, which is apparently your entree to her life. So if you could tell us a bit about sort of where, what she was doing here in that sort of post 1910 period that really caught your interest. Sure. Um, I really think of this as the period where she becomes a producer equivalent to uh, Florence Ziegfeld or a George M. Cohan. Um, she's working in the review form. It's just her, she turns her vaudeville act, her vaudeville turn into a full review. So it takes up half of a vaudeville bill and it has so many different 
imitations and dances and costume changes. Um, there will be some comic pieces that she does just right at the lip of the stage or, but then there will be some very big splashy pieces involving a huge cast after that. I mean, it's just incredible. This is the period of her work that I'd most like to see just to see how it all gets put together. Um, And that is around the time that she gets involved with wanting to bring the ballet Russe um, she's going, she and Max go over to, uh, Paris pretty frequently, pretty much, uh, every summer for a couple of years in the late 19 aughts, early 1910s. And, you know, she sees them perform and she thinks, oh my God, this is amazing. I have to bring this to the U.S. Um, even though she works in this kind of popular mode, she always has very highbrow ambitions. She thinks of herself as a kind of popularizer, a translator, a transmitter who can bring beautiful dance and beautiful spectacle to mass audiences. Um, That's really what she was doing with her review style vaudeville act is she was bringing something like the Ziegfeld Follies to people in Peoria. Um, She's bringing it to the masses. And that's what she wants to do with the Ballet Russe. So initially, she she goes backstage and says, hey, I need to bring you guys to the U.S. And people involved in the Ballet Russe say, no, no. Michelle Fokine says, no, we have a, we have a booking in London, so we can't come to the U S right now. Um, but she finds other people involved in the ballet Russe who, you know, who are not going on to London, who she can bring to the U S learns how to, dance in this Russian ballet style. Of course, people who were trained in Russia were trained from the time that they were very small. The idea that you could learn how to dance with the Russian ballet by just taking lessons for a couple of months is absurd. But um, she takes lessons from Theodor Koslov. She talks to the people who did the costumes, she gets the plates. Um, She figures out with that kind of stage manager's eye how to replicate the dances that she's seen. And along with her manager at the time, Morris Guest, um, puts together a, a fake, I always struggled with this, fake imitation ersatz, um, an imitation of several ballet russe dances and they toured the U S and it's um, initially not received very well in New York city. Uh, People love the spectacle of it. They think the dancers from Russia are quite good, but they're too accustomed to seeing Gertrude Hoffman doing things 
that are funny and maybe things that are a little bit sexy, but not high art. And the Russian ballet at that time was really getting codified as as high art. So it took a little bit more time. Um, The tour went all the way to California. uh, And this was with a huge cast, huge orchestra, huge cast. But by the time she makes it to California, people really receive her with open arms. She's, you know, the returning prodigal daughter. Um, They think, okay, Gertrude Hoffman's going to be the second coming of Isidore Duncan. She's amazing. She's this eloquent figure, um, this eloquent mimetic figure. And there's tons of coverage in San Francisco paper, Los Angeles papers. And um, from all accounts, she really did get better um, and could go toe to toe with the people she was dancing with in the Ballet Russe. So it's a really interesting period. It's one of the couple of times when she tries to shed her vaudeville image entirely, but then realizes, oh no, that's actually part of my strength. So um, the second half of the tour, she puts some of her imitations on the bill between the second and third Russian ballet, which is just, you know, completely unheard of and just scandalized even to talk about it. Um but that's why it's fascinating to me because she thinks about, okay, what are people going to want to see and how can I keep up their attention and sees these kind of parallels where you have, okay, she's coming out being unwrapped from scarves as Cleopatra in one ballet. And then she's coming out being some popular vaudeville diva in another act and trying to draw parallels between those two types of female performance. It just, just blows me away. So your sense of these performances of the ballet Russe um, ballets is that they were entirely serious, that she was very much um, treating it as a high art uh, experience, at least in the, in that moment. And then uh, she would sort of break that with these other acts that she put in. Is that is that how you're feeling she was? There was no hint of sort of, it's not really an imitation. She's just recreating the, the ballet russe dances? Yes, that's right. That's right. And there, there's some, um, some of the work in her vaudeville review performances was like that too. She would do... Um, an Isidore Duncan, um, Blue Danube waltz, completely straight, not, not parodic at all. Um, so there were certain dances that she did where it was just, uh, a straight imitation rather than a winking, nodding or a winking, nudging kind of imitation. So in my own work, I look at people who do this with opera in vaudeville and there are opera singers who come out and just, they sing opera, right? They're not trying to make fun of it. They're in their beautiful gowns and they sing an aria from Verdi or something. And there's always this kind of the critical responses, often something like, 
Wow, that's just too much for the vaudeville audience. But her voice was great and everyone loved it and they cheered. But it's a good thing she didn't do too much of that because, you know, you can all, it, this audience can only handle a little bit of that kind of art. Did she get that same kind of response when she was doing the Ballet Russe? Or, you know, what, what do the critics have to say about it? Absolutely, she did. And I think that's why it was more of a success on the Western half of the tour when she put her imitations in there too. Um, There's one quote that I always remember from the San Francisco Chronicle um, where a critic says she has a punch in her hand for the highbrows and another one for the roughnecks. So she was really seen as somebody who understood what vaudeville audiences could manage and what they would appreciate and how to maybe leaven it a little bit with some humor or a little bit of distraction. Um, She does that with another dance or another pantomime, I should say, that she borrows from Europe a little bit later. Um, And that is received in a way that's a little bit more confused um, when she does a Max Reinhardt pantomime called Sumeroon um, that's based on a story from the Arabian Nights. Um, that's the place where critics say, oh yeah, it's really well done, but it's not vaudeville. Vaudeville is not going to appreciate it. And um, people who would appreciate it will not go see it if it's in vaudeville. So that's definitely something she did experience. But the Ballet Russe, I don't know, because it was because it was such a popular and of the moment kind of spectacle coming from Europe. Um, it's something that people were interested in, even if it was seen as, you know, highbrow. Um, I also think the Ballet Russe dances that she chose were very visually striking um, and they had a lot of sex in them. So it's something where she, again, she knew her audience. She knew what was going to work. And um, with the Ballet Russe productions, it ended up being pretty successful. So the war is coming, World War One, and um, there's this very rich uh, transatlantic exchange that she's part of where people are going to Europe and like she did with the Ballet Russe and others, brings home stuff for Americans. You have American performers going to Europe to perform and vice versa. And then it becomes very, even though America is not in the war yet, in 1914, it becomes extraordinarily dangerous to go back and forth. In fact, Charles Froman, a Broadway producer, is killed on the Lusitania when it's sunk. So a lot of that exchange ends and you start to see American um, uh, popular entertainment change as a result of um, of the run-up to the war and the idea that the war might be coming. And then, of course, they, uh, it does come. Um, how does Hoffman and her uh, entertainment change and respond to both the uh, new mood among her audience, but also getting cut off from this uh, area where she had uh, really mined for her acts? 
Yeah. So when vaudeville's responding to the war, it's all very propagandistic and very pro-American. Um, they like to have um, sandbags and imitate the trenches on stage. They like to have women come out wrapped in the Belgian flag or wrapped in the French flag. And Hoffman's act definitely picks up on some of those tendencies. Uh, She has a kind of spectacular fashion show where she shows off native costumes from different nations of the world. Um, They do a lot of... (laughs) They get a lot of mileage out of a really big American flag that was said to be the largest flag in vaudeville. And when they'd unfurl it, um, they kept having this problem where people would stand up and put their hands on their hearts because they didn't want it to seem unpatriotic by not doing that, even though they weren't, you know, playing the national anthem or anything. But she really got into the into the showy side of making sure that that patriotism was at the heart of her act. You know, there's one moment on tour when she's bringing Red Cross nurses in to be a part of her chorus. Like they're gathering smokes to send to soldiers at the front line. Like it's very, very much a part of how she is engaging with her audience. Um, But the interesting thing that happens in terms of how vaudeville changes is because people want to, um, want to scrimp and save and, and be virtuous um, because of the boys overseas Uh, the kind of flashy, spectacular act that she does starts to fall out of fashion. People are more interested in individual stars and individual personality um, rather than something big and expensive, even if it does entail having the largest flag in vaudeville. So there's a sense that it's moving away from the big Ziegfeld Folly style reviews with lots of people and feathers and sequins. Um, So she tries to really take that to heart and revamps her act so she doesn't have a troupe anymore. So it's just her um, doing imitations doing solo dances, playing the drums, playing the trombone, just trying to really emphasize her star power and her ability to hold the crowd's attention all by herself. That's sort of the the way she reacts to that move away from flash and towards personality. Also a lot cheaper. Uh, because they didn't have to pay for, you know, a whole chorus and orchestra for traveling. So it had that benefit, too. So after the war, she doesn't seem to ever reclaim the kind of popularity she had, but yet she lives in, you know, another 
uh, well, she lives until the 40s. She lives uh, past the war and so past World War II. So she's got a long time in her career when she's sort of trying, it seems to me, trying to recapture her former glory or, or try to establish her legacy or something like that. Can you give us an idea of kind of what does she do when her style of big, over-the-top, elaborate, vaudevillian kind of entertainment goes out of style and she can't really um, regain, you know, she can't, she tries to change, but the audience doesn't seem to be there for her anymore. So what, what does she do then? She decides to, she goes all in with dance um, and she decides to train um, young women to be dancers um, she has a dance studio and trains a troupe um, that she calls the Gertrude Hoffman Girls. Um, they and it's not even fair to call them dancers. It's a very unusual combination of maybe the Rockettes and Cirque du Soleil because they do some precision dancing. Um, but they also do some acts where they're um, swinging from aerial silks into the audience and making patterns with their bodies on the aerial silks. It's a very interesting moment for her to move back into this work that she did at the beginning of her career, where she's arranging um, large groups of women on stage and she's not the focal point anymore. Um, that's what she does in the 20s quite successfully. Um, the Gertrude Hoffman girls perform in the Ziegfeld Follies. They go to Paris and perform at the Moulin Rouge and um, perform in Berlin and in London. But that's where she puts most of her energy into these um all female um, dance troops that end up serving as sort of supplementary choruses in Broadway shows, um, performing at nightclubs, different places like that. So she sort of ends up in some ways where she had started at the early part of the 1900s, where she's back in that producer impresario role. That's quite unusual for women. I mean, I, I can think of other women who, who took real charge of her career like that, but it's, it is unusual. So she's, um, did she get credit for being such uh, a pathbreaker? Is that something that they use to their advantage, for instance, in their publicity, or is that not really what, uh, what was noticed at the time? Um, I mean, I think it, people knew it was unusual that it was a little bit more, like something you would expect from a modern dancer, like an Isadora Duncan with the Isadorables or something like that. Um, I'm really interested in Albertina Rash, who's another woman who ends up having a kind of dance troupe whose work she uh, choreographs and stages too. Um, but there weren't that many, for sure. Um, people mostly... In the publicity for the Gertrude Hoffman girls, people mostly remember Gertrude Hoffman for her vaudeville career. We'll occasionally talk about, you know, her Salome dance or how she was very scandalous back in the days when 
um, barefoot dance was a big deal. So what do you see as her lasting legacy um, uh, with this very long career that she had? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, there are so many different parts of her career that had different legacies. I think um, her early career and her work with the Gertrude Hoffman girls both leave a legacy in terms of the way um, dance choruses move in Broadway shows and at Radio City Music Hall. Um, There's definitely Busby Berkeley routines that are reminiscent of the kind of work that she did. But in terms of her imitations, um, that's what seemed very modern to me. The idea that you could imitate something precisely or comically um, and that that in and of itself would be a great skill. You know, there's so much um, online you know, shot for shot imitation of this and that, or um, the woman on TikTok who lip syncs um, the president and it's really funny. Um, So there, I just feel like she's sort of a kindred spirit to people who make imitations of people and things that are more famous than them and try to um, puncture some of the, seriousness in their imitations. Well, certainly your um, biography of her, I think, really brings her to life. She's like so many vaudevillians from that period. They're just fascinating people who um, long after they have sort of dropped out of the national consciousness continue to be important um, as you know, figures around which networks uh, grow as trainers of other, um, uh, uh, you know, other dancers in her case or other entertainers as people that really become part of the entertainment infrastructure going forward. Um, and uh, and it sort of keeps that vaudevillian ethos alive long after vaudeville is done. And then you do get someone like a Sarah Cooper, who is who is the woman who um, uh, is lipstick's the president, right? And, and there's this sort of long fetch where, um, I, you know, I don't know how much of a historian of the theater she is, but you can sort of see if you keep going back how, you know, that, that still grows out of that kind of mimicry, um, that is Mm -hmm. still, uh, being practiced today, you know, in a different form, we have different kinds of technology, but it's very much the same idea. So, um, I think uh, this work on Hoffman really puts her, you know, in the center of that kind of thing. It's really quite an ex- really interesting book. So I appreciate you coming to talk to to me about this for today's podcast. And um, perhaps so you finished this big book. It just was published a couple of months ago. Do you have a new project on tap already? I do. Um, I'm really interested in the New York Hippodrome. And this is, it's just almost too daunting of a project to even think about because it brings in so many different aspects of 
uh, spectacle and theatrical culture at the time. You know, you have to talk about circuses, you have to talk about music, you have to talk about dance. And even just the New York Hippodrome's building is tremendous. It has an 8,000 gallon water tank that can be lifted up and down from the stage where you have, you know, people like Annette Kellerman doing dives and Harry Houdini makes an elephant disappear on the stage. It's this really fascinating center of spectacular performance after we think spectacular performance has sort of disappeared from the popular imagination. When we typically think about um, spectacular performance in the 20th century, it's mostly in the movies. But the idea that you would still have this, you know, block long theater in Times Square that any tourist who went there in the early 20th century had to go see a show at the Hippodrome. Um, So, yeah, I'm just I don't know quite what I'm going to do with it yet. I'm thinking about framing it as a group biography of producers and performers affiliated with the Hippodrome. But I have some um, research to do at different archives at the Ransom Center in Texas and at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center, um, which is really my happy place when it comes to archival research. And, you know, once once coronavirus blows over, um, I'm going to head to those places and see what I can find and figure out what kind of stories can be told about the Hippodrome, the kind of people who worked there and the shows that were produced. Well, I am so glad you're doing that because I love the Hippodrome too. So I would love to see what you have to say about that. And um, I've spent many, many hours in the reading room at the New York Public Library. So <laughs> I understand what you mean. I miss, I miss being in the archives a lot as well. So I wish you good luck with that. Um, so thank you so much and, uh, we'll wrap this up, but just to remind people, my name is Kristen Turner and this is New Books in Music, a channel of the New New Books Network. And I've been talking today with Sonny Stalter-Pace, author of Imitation Artist, Gertrude Hoffman's Life in Vaudeville and Dance. Thank you so much.